0: For travelers looking for some place new to explore in the Old World, let's get acquainted now with one of Central Europe's oldest and most interesting cities. That would be Krakow. It sits on the Vistula River near the Carpathian Mountains in southern Poland. Krakow is often called the second city of Poland after the busy capital city of Warsaw, and Krakow's importance dates back to at least the 7th century. There's a lot for visitors to explore, from medieval times right up to our generation. Beata McComas was born and raised in Krakow and now lives in the U.S. She specializes in guiding American visitors to her home country. And Cameron Hewitt logs many miles in Poland each year as the co-author of the Rick Steves Guidebook to Eastern Europe. Beata and Cameron, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Beata, when you think of Americans dreaming about going to Poland... Warsaw is the biggest city, but there's something special about Krakow. What does Krakow mean to the Polish people?
1: Well, it was our second capital for about 500 years. So we have the the castle.
0: 500 years. It was the capital of the Polish yes. people. Yes. Wow. Yes.
1: So we have the castle, uh, Gothic castle there, with a cathedral on the Wawel.
0: Does everybody know what Wawel is? In Poland?
1: everybody in Poland does. What is yes. it? Well, that's the the oldest part of of Krakow, the so hub if where a, everything if there's started. there's a
0: spiritual piece of, of dirt in Poland, it would be the Wawel Hill.
1: Correct, the Wawel Hill. That's
0: where the most important palace, the most important church, the most important tombs. Yes. And John Paul II was the bishop in Krakow.
1: In Krakow, correct. Krakow also has the oldest uh, university in Poland and second oldest in Central Europe.
0: Cameron, when you think about Krakow, you can also add on to that its important in uh, the Jewish culture, because I understand in its day it was the sort of the center of Judaism in Europe.
2: Well, right, for much of uh, European history, most European countries from the Middle Ages really were either ejecting their Jewish residents or not interested in having them settle there, but Poland had an unusually tolerant king who actually actively promoted Jewish people coming and settling. About a quarter of the city was, was Jewish all the way up in, until World War II. And that Jewish culture really thrived in Krakow. And especially there's a neighborhood called Kazimierz, which is just uh, about a 15-minute walk from the main square of Krakow. And they had their own little town, their own little market square, their own churches, their own synagogues. And it was a, a mixed community, but it was also uh, certainly a, a place where a lot of the Jewish people were, were living.
0: Now, do I understand that four or 500 years ago, like more than half of all the Jews in Europe were in Poland? That's correct. It seems hard to believe, but really that was the the homeland of Judaism in Europe for, for centuries, throughout the Middle Ages.
2: For centuries, Poland was the only place that would take those people. It was a, a time when a lot of the rest of Europe was telling them to go away, and, and Poland said, come on, you can settle here.
0: And then today there's 200 Jews left in
2: Krakow. Right. after, Of course, after the Holocaust, the population is is almost nothing. So
0: if you're—like in, like when I was in Krakow, I saw lots of uh, school groups from Israel coming up there, making a pilgrimage. What would you see if you were a, a Jewish— uh, a traveler coming to Krakow to better understand your heritage.
2: You have a lot of different synagogues that have been rebuilt and reopened in the last few years. You have some very evocative cemeteries that were forgotten. And actually, when the Nazis came in, they would run their tanks through the cemeteries and knock over all the headstones and cover them with dirt. And you wouldn't even know they were there. It was really interesting, actually, in the end of communism, 1989, That was a part of the history that still was not very much embraced. And it wasn't really until Steven Spielberg showed up. He filmed Schindler's List there, and I think it was in 1993. That's where those events actually took place, and that's where he came to film the movie. He didn't have to film it there. He could have filmed it anywhere. So people today say, well, we really appreciate that he came in. He brought an awareness of the world to Krakow, but he also locally kind of reignited an interest in this Jewish heritage. Through telling the story of Schindler's List, he reminded people how important Krakow and Poland were to the Jewish story and, and That's how true, isn't it? Important he really, that was he for really Holocaust. directed
0: that and then Krakow has capitalized on that, really.
2: Right. And for years I would go starting about ten years ago, every year I'd go back and a new synagogue would have been reopened. And in a lot of cases they were buildings that had been forgotten or they'd been turned into something else. And starting with Schindler's List, um, in, in the factory. And the factory, right. So the other interesting part here is the actual factory where Oscar Schindler and his workers lived and worked was on the outskirts of this neighborhood. And again, it was deserted for years, and very recently they've turned it into a really interesting state-of-the-art museum.
0: Very impressive museum. I've got to say, one of one of the most powerful Holocaust-related museums I've seen in Europe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Cameron Hewitt and Beata Makomas, two experts on Poland. Beata is a Polish-born tour guide, and Cameron writes guidebooks to Eastern Europe. Our phone number is 877 333 And Steve's calling in from Minneapolis in Minnesota. Steve, thanks for your call. Nice to be with you. First, how did the presence of the Nazis' largest death camps, the Auschwitz-Birkenau, impact Krakow in the post-war years? And second, how do present-day Krakowians feel about having uh, what I call the saddest place on Earth in their backyard? So we should remind our listeners that Auschwitz, uh, just a huge and notorious concentration camp, death camp, is just uh, the number one side trip from Krakow. It's uh, an hour away. And uh, Beata, how do people feel about having Auschwitz there in their backyard?
1: From the last day of the war, 1945, we wanted to preserve the site for uh, future generations to show, hey, this is how bad it can get. And so we never turned down the buildings. They're still standing as they were.
0: So we should say Auschwitz and Birkenau, those are sister camps. Auschwitz was first. They built Birkenau when they learned how to do their terrible deed better and bigger. So Birkenau is the vast factory of death next to Auschwitz.
1: Yes. So now more than ever before, we feel how important it is to have those buildings there being presented to the world and open for a public. And it's just a statement. And we're proud of the fact that we preserve that site. And uh, hopefully many more people will visit and take a minute to think about where we were, where we are going. And I was actually very surprised, pleasantly surprised to see a young German families in their 30s with the kids, six, seven, eight years old, yeah. walking through there and talking about history openly, not feeling ashamed, just talking mm-hmm. how, what it was, how it was.
0: Any concentration camp uh, visit, to me, is a rich opportunity to learn. And the richest, most impactful visit I've had, I think, is Auschwitz and Birkenau.
2: And to answer your question, I think something that maybe goes without saying, but uh, when I work as a tour guide, I really emphasize to my tour members, this is in Poland, but it is a German phenomenon. It was a Nazi phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It wasn't wanted by the people of Poland any any more than, than anyone else. So in terms of how today's Polish people kind of reconcile that. They think of it as something that someone brought in from the outside and that they now feel a responsibility to make sure everyone has access to.
0: Steve, does that all make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I have visited uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau and also Dachau in Germany. But I would say the immensity of Birkenau is what is so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And that's why I call it the saddest place on earth because of the impact Mm -hmm. it had, had and has. Hey, Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you all. Bye-bye. One place I find particularly interesting in Krakow is the Soviet, the communist-planned workers' city, Nowa Huta. Am I saying that correctly, Beata? That is correct. What was it like to be in Poland, to grow up in Poland and have these big cities that were built just for efficient use of workers?
1: That's pretty much what it is. You felt like you're a part of a well, quote-unquote, oiled machine. You're designed to do one thing and one thing only, that's set from above your your so local it's government. Top, is top down, yes. and you're
0: a cog in a wheel in a big machine.
1: Yes, yes, and really, you go to work, you do your thing, you go home to this this mass-produced apartment complex made out of those big concrete blocks because that was the most efficient way to quickly build something for many people.
0: To but live. you think about this, this would be after World War II, and you walk out there today, and you think it's a worker's tenement slum, but if you think of the reality of the peasant in Poland, after World War II, this would be something they would strive to live in. Wouldn't it be a, a real lucky thing for a, a, a typical Polish person in the
2: 50s? Yeah, in fact, now it's really run down. But uh, when you think about the time, at the time, it was really an idyllic idea. In fact, there are pictures in the museum here at Nowa Huta. You can see where a lot of peasants brought their farm animals. There are cows grazing in the fields in front of these huge, gigantic, concrete, communist-planned workers' towns.
0: This is like the Beverly Hillbillies' strike in gold.
2: At the beginning, yeah. Th- this was a whole new way of uh, of envisioning the Polish economy. But yeah, I've talked to people who grew up in that area, and they say, you know, yeah, it was, it was kind of ugly. But on the other hand, it was very efficient. You efficient. Know, th- you they good- planned it in a really smart way. There was a, a park. Each giant apartment building had a park inside where the kids could play. And there was a parking garage underneath that doubled as a bomb shelter. And the tram stops were perfectly lined up with where people lived. I'm not saying I'd want to live there, but I'm saying if you did live there, especially... Given the the horrors of World War II, it might not have seemed so terrible at the time.
0: And all the propaganda was built in with the names of the squares and the streets and the blocks.
2: Yes, but now uh, there's been sort of a poetic justice. The main square used to be called simply Central Square, and recently they renamed it Ronald Reagan Square. There
1: you go. See, when you think about it, I mean, we were in such a need after the war. Yeah. Of housing, this was, you know, they put this massive structure in less than a year. I grew up in in something like that in Torun. Really? hmm It was honestly like two miles from the city center. Hmm. And it's not, not as big as Nova Huta by any stretch of imagination, but there are probably 15 blocks like that built, and probably the best part of my childhood, you just got out of the building, you scream, who wants to play? You know, there was several blocks around, and kids just popped in, and, huh. you know, yeah.
0: So you were in the little workers' city, and you could just holler, anybody want to play?
1: Yeah, there was no such a thing like play dates. My mom would always tell me, just buzz through the intercom, let me know every hour that you're alive. And so
0: you check in on the intercom every Yeah, it's like, mom, mom, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah,
1: and then off we go. And every day I would eat dinner with at some friend's house and vice versa.
0: So I have a good image now of you as a little child in one of these panned worker towns. <laughs> Anybody want to play?
1: That, I mean, really, don't you think that's a great childhood? It's
0: a great childhood. Yeah. What was in the playground? Was there toys for the children?
1: Well, the playground, honestly, parents these days would think that your kid would die within a half an hour. I mean, sharp corners, everything made out of metal. Probably the paint that everything was painted with was from China, with like, you could, you know, with some chemicals you it, yeah. that you could. Yeah. I but mean. Did,
0: did you have swings or, yeah. or ladders to climb or what?
1: Absolutely, and uh, more often than not, those are the, like the regular ladders, metal ladders, just put on some side bars. was so improvised.
0: Yeah. Just improvised. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Did everybody have the same apartment?
1: There were usually three designs. It was the, the one bedroom, the two and three bedrooms. And you usually, my parents waited, well, they were, my mom was in the military, so I believe she was pushed a little bit further, uh, you know, to the front of the line. She had an
0: advantage because she was in the military?
1: Yes, and we had passports. So during communism, we were able to go outside. So we traveled outside of, well, because we, she was in the was military. My yeah. mom was, and so we had the passports to do that.
0: But I've heard that in the apartment, every... Refrigerator was the same. Every cupboard was the same.
1: Yes, Every... you didn't really worry about the style of what you're buying. My parents waited three days in line, day and night. They were taking turns uh, to buy a couch and to uh, and the couch armchairs. would fit
0: because the couch was built with that yeah. apartment tonight. I mean,
1: and probably you didn't
0: have to wonder if your if your furniture would fit. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, no, no. You were happy that you got a couch. You didn't even ask what color. You just want a couch. <laughs> I remember we had the first colored TV on our block.
0: You did. Yes. Because your mom was military.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> because we had the stores called Pevex. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's where, where you, can you spend could spend some hard cash.
1: And we had dollars.
0: Because uh, your mom was military.
1: Yes. And so she had access to dollars. And in Pevex stores, you could buy whatever you wanted I designer those jeans, stores. you know, color TVs, whatnot, but only if you had the U.S. currency.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the historic capital and number one site in Poland, I think you can say, Krakow. And we're joined by Beata Makomis and Cameron Hewitt, two Polish tour guides. And Cameron, when you think about Krakow, I have to think about Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II.
2: That's right. Yeah. New, I have to keep catching myself. He's not just Pope John Paul. He's St. John Paul II. And uh, yeah, he was the archbishop. He wasn't born in Krakow, but he, he spent a lot of time there and was the archbishop there. And people are, as much as all Polish people are incredibly proud of him, the people of Krakow are especially proud of him. And, you know, for years, 10 years ago, while he was still alive, there weren't a lot of sights related to him. In fact, uh, the one thing you could see was uh, the little window where he used to stay when he would visit his, his hometown. There now, was.
0: Weren't you there when he died, actually? I was, Krakow?
2: yeah. I was there in uh, spring of 2005 on the night that John Paul died, and it was incredibly moving. We were. I was happened to be walking through this area where this window was, the room that he used to stay in when he would visit Krakow. And suddenly a speaker, a loudspeaker, crackled to life, and somebody announced in Polish that the Pope had died. And thousands of people were standing in the street, sort of having a silent vigil at this window. And they all just fell to their knees all at the same time. It was just a crippling loss for the Polish people. And at the time, though, for somebody who really wanted to connect with John Paul II, there weren't a lot of sites. There was this window where they would set up a picture of him. Um, There were little sites in the backs of churches. One thing I've really noticed the last few years, especially now that he's a saint, Many interesting, engaging, powerful sites dedicated to the memory of St. John Paul II. Uh, I was
0: just out there a year ago at the new John Paul II Center with the new church.
2: Yeah, they're building a huge uh, ecclesiastical complex with a big modern church and a museum filled with different things that people have given John Paul over the years. Uh, it's quite nice.
0: The museum was beautiful. Uh, you can see the outpouring of love from across Christendom, uh, across the world. And the church, it was, it was interesting to see a new, a modern church, because you don't see a lot of that in, in Europe. And Poland, of course, is still one of the most church-going corners of Europe, and this beautiful, big, modern church in the memory of John Paul II. Yeah,
2: it's still a work in progress. It's also interesting to see a, a church that is only partially decorated, but they're working on it. And, you know, in his hometown called Vadovice, which is about a half hour, hour outside of the city, there they've turned his, home, his boyhood home into a, a modern state-of-the-art museum as well. So there's lots of efforts recently to, to make it more accessible for people to learn about John Paul II.
0: So we have the, the greatest medieval market square in Europe. We've got wonderful museums about the history, about the Jewish heritage, about uh, World War II and John Paul II. Beata, when you are going to go to Krakow as a, a young Polish tour guide, you're probably more interested in uh, what's going on after dark and where can I get a nice drink. Take us there.
1: Absolutely. The nightlife is happening. And the bars are open till 5, 6 in the morning.
0: And it's cheap for an American traveler.
1: Yes. Uh, the service is great.
0: Even Kazimirsk, you go out there, traditionally you'd go there for some klezmir music, I think. And now you go there and it's just thriving with trendy pubs and cafes and clubs. And it's just a great scene.
1: It's a university city. So you have over 200,000 students just living in, in Krakow plus add to that people from all over the world visiting. And next year, Krakow will be hosting the World Youth Conference. So there's going to be a lot more young people there. You
0: don't just get that opportunity to host the World Youth Conference. You've got to have a few places to put the youth after dark. Yes, yes. I was there walking the streets one night just a year ago, and I stumbled onto a vodka bar that that was kind of designed for tourists to taste all the different kinds of vodka. And for a couple dollars, you had a couple of baristas who really knew their vodka, and endless selections. Cameron, what are some of the selections you might have?
2: Well, the most famous, and I think the the funniest story, is one called Żubrowka. Żubrow is buffalo, and there actually are bison preserves in northern Poland. And in each bottle of Żubrowka vodka, you have a single blade of grass, And the story goes that the grass comes from these bison preserves. So they think that the bison season the grass, and then the grass seasons the vodka. Um, There's a little picture of a bison right on the bottle.
0: The bison seasons the grass, and the grass seasons the vodka, and then the vodka seasons the pole.
2: You don't have to worry about anything (laughs) getting through the high alcohol content of uh, Polish vodka.
1: You know, there is only two correct ways to drink uh, that particular type of vodka. It's either bottoms-up or with uh, apple juice. You don't mix it with any other juice. Oh, you're not supposed to.
0: You can mix it with apple juice? Yes.
1: That's the only juice you're allowed to mix the vodka with.
0: Okay, Beata, we're in a little uh, bar on a on back street in Krakow, and we're, we've each got a vodka in front of us. What's the etiquette? What do we do? How do we drink it together?
1: Well, we say na zdrowie and bottoms up. You don't sip? You don't sip. You just
0: bottoms up. If I sip, what do people think?
1: Well... That's frowned <laughs> upon. <laughs> I, I will say they'll think you're, you're a wuss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is that a Polish word? A wuss. <laughs> so I'm a, I won't be a wuss. Okay, bottoms up. Na And how do you say thank you very much and happy travels?
1: Uh, bardzo dziękuję i przyjemnej podróży.
0: That's what I say to you. Okay, thanks, Pieta, and thanks, Cameron.
2: Dziękuję, Rick. Rick Steves
0: has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.